This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. From the Fox News Podcast Network. <laughs> Election Rewind 2000. 2000. 2000. Good evening. Just moments ago, I spoke with George W. Bush and congratulated him on becoming the 43rd president of the United States. And I promised him that I wouldn't call him back this time. I offered to meet with him as soon as possible so that we can start to heal the divisions of the campaign and the contest through which we've just passed. Almost a century and a half ago, Senator Stephen Douglas told Abraham Lincoln, who had just defeated him for the presidency, Partisan feeling must yield to patriotism. Patriotism. What can be viewed uh, as either a dimple or a hanging chad? Apparently, he's not going to. He's not going to concede. And uh, you know, what, what is he going to? Is he going to say something? What is he going to say? That officials are not ruling out military action this time against whoever's to blame for the attack on the coal. And I am proud to accept your nomination to be the next vice, vice president. president. They had their chance. They have not led. We will. The plane carrying Elian Gonzalez just lifted off. We should build no walls in a futile attempt to keep the world at bay. Walls are for cowards. They've been working since 88, getting ready for Y2K. Episode 1, The Dawn of a New Millennium. I, George Herbert Walker Bush, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. That I will faithfully execute... The last two vice presidents to be elected to the presidency are George H.W. Bush and Martin Van Buren. Fox News politics editor Chris Steyerwalt. And there's a reason, is that Americans like change and don't think that Parties ought to stay in power indefinitely and all of that jazz. In addition to that barrier that Bush was facing in 1988 was the fact that if you could have personified the soul of the Eastern Republican country club establishment, this was the guy. We need compromise. We've had dissension. We need harmony. We've had a chorus of discordant voices. For Congress, too, has changed in our time. There's grown a certain divisiveness. We've seen the hard looks and heard the statements in which not each other's ideas are challenged, but each other's motives. President Bush is a great example of somebody who took, was not afraid to take that fork in the road, the unknown, the unexpected fork in the road. And he did that his entire life. Former chief of staff to George H.W. Bush, Gene Becker. He lived life with uh, not only enthusiasm and energy, but with a lot of courage. And the first example would be after he graduated from Yale and everyone in the family assumed he would go to Wall Street, which is where his father was and his uncle was. And he had a great Wall Street job 
uh, waiting for him. Instead, he got into a Studebaker and drove to Odessa, Texas, where he and Barbara Bush and George W. lived in a duplex that the other half was occupied by a mother-daughter prostitute team. But he, you know, he wanted to, he wanted to do something different. He wanted to be adventuresome. And at that point, it was the, the oil industry. And he was very interested. He had followed his father's path to the Senate. And he ran for office for the first time in 1964. He didn't win. He lost. But he was elected to the House of Representatives in 1966. President Nixon put him in the United Nations, back to D.C. to head up the RNC when President Ford offered to make him an ambassador, really as a thank you for helping steer the Republican Party through Watergate. He offered him London, Paris, or Rome. And the man picked Beijing to be the emissary to China and then back to D.C. where he was head of the CIA. And then in 1980, when he became President Reagan's VP. So his career path was a lot of forks in the road. And he would a lot of times take the road less known. A new breeze is blowing and the old bipartisanship must be made new again. Bush, son of a powerful U.S. senator, Bush, the Yaley, Bush, the insider CIA guy. This guy was emblematic of everything that the new look Republican Party that had evolved out of the Nixon era, the more populist, uh, the more red meat, more socially conservative. Bush was none of that. And he was a throwback to a Republican Party that was approaching extinction. So it made it all the more remarkable that he was able to win in 1988. Well, I'm going to be there Friday with Phil Graham uh, campaigning around the state. My brother Jeb, his wife Columba, and George P. Bush, another George Bush in our family, who you'll get to see tomorrow night lead the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, will be campaigning in South Texas with uh, Roy Barrera. Uh, So you'll see a lot of the Bushes. George W. Bush literally had an office in the White House, and it wasn't clear at times what his role was. Journalist and political analyst Juan Williams. But he was around and an advisor to his father, and obviously with unparalleled access not only to his father, but to his mother, who also had a role to play. It was a regular advisor to President George H.W. Bush. They're a lovely couple. Um, And what you sensed there was that the son uh, was looking for a role. Texas is vital. I'm convinced George Bush will carry Texas because Texans are going to want a Texan for president, not a guy from Massachusetts. But uh, it's uh, we're ready to fight. George W., you know, he was always there for his dad. And it was huge in 1988. George W. literally moved to Washington, D.C. and and, uh, became... I don't know what his title was, but the senior advisor, he uh, he would say he did not run the campaign, but he was his dad's eyes and ears on the campaign team. The first time I met him was a, a reporter for USA Today, and I went to campaign headquarters to interview him, and he had his feet up on a desk smoking a cigar, and I was absolutely scared to death of him. <laughs> scared the hell out of me. There is a man here who has earned a lasting place in our hearts and in our history. President Reagan, on behalf of our nation, 
I thank you for the wonderful things that you have done for America. But remember, George H.W. Bush did something very unusual. He won a third term for his party. National political correspondent for NPR. Mara Liason. He followed a two-term president of his own party, which is extremely hard to do. And I think he's the only modern president who has done that. Um, So usually the country wants a change after eight years. The hallmark moment for Bush is the first Gulf War, the first large-scale exercise of American military power since Vietnam, and it is a smashing success. This conflict started August 2nd, when the dictator of Iraq invaded a small and helpless neighbor. Kuwait, a member of the Arab League and a member of the United Nations, was crushed. Its people brutalized. Five months ago, Saddam Hussein started this cruel war against Kuwait. Tonight, the battle has been joined. Ticker tape parades, uh, students across the country standing for patriotic uh, uh, rendition of the national anthem, uh, a, a, a towering success that created celebrities out of his generals, out of Colin Powell and Norman Schwarzkopf. And Bush pulled it off with international consensus, and it was evidence of what he said was possible in a new world order, that with the Soviet Union gone, that we could develop a a world in which liberal democracy of the kind that Western countries enjoyed would become the norm and that everything would get better and better. I have stated clearly, repeatedly, that we have to expect uh, and demand and insist that Saddam Hussein comply with the ceasefire agreements. And I don't think we should rule out military force. And that decision has to be made uh, by Mr. Bush. We only have one president at a time. Bill Clinton was not a national figure by any stretch in the 1980s. Co-founder of The Dispatch, Jonah Goldberg. He was the governor of a fairly small state that doesn't usually get into the headlines. It's no knock on Arkansas. But um, his first real exposure to the limelight, other than a weird spat he had with Jimmy Carter about Cuban refugees in the state, uh, was in 1988 when he gave a keynote address at the Democratic Convention. Mr. Chairman, I'm honored to be here tonight to nominate my friend Michael Dukakis for President of the United States. It went on longer than the wedding scene in The Deer Hunter. I can tell you one thing. When he needs to be, Mike Dukakis is tough as nails. It elicited the kind of response in people, sort of like in the movie Airplane, when the guy, whoever was sitting next to the guy who talked too long, they all committed suicide. We accept far more adult illiteracy than others do, even though we know that 80% of the workforce in the year 2000 is already working. And a lot of people thought it was going to ruin his political career, uh, but then he turned it in something that Bill Clinton was always very good at, uh, long before he was called the comeback kid. He turned it into a joke about himself on some late night TV show and whatnot and managed to claw back. But that was his first exposure nationally. In closing. I want you to remember. There were two key things about Bill Clinton. One was just his sheer talent as a retail politician. He was the most talented retail politician of his generation. He could feel people's pain. He was 
brilliant. He could describe policies in, in ways that ordinary people um, you know, could understand. He was indefatigable. He was the comeback kid after having to fight back through all those scandals. Second of all, just his um, theory of the case about how a Democrat could win. After the Democrats had been in the wilderness for a long time, Bill Clinton was a southern border state governor, Arkansas, and he was head of something called the Democratic Leadership Council, which was a group of centrist Democrats, new Democrats, who were had moved to the center on social welfare policies, on the deficit, on taxes, um, all sorts of things, on crime, all sorts of issues that Bill Clinton and Democrats like him felt had hurt the Democratic Party. So he moved to the center and what he, even more importantly, he somehow figured out how to bridge the left wings, left wing of the Democratic Party and the center of the Democratic Party. I have treated you and all the people who've interrupted my rallies with a hell of a lot more respect than you've treated me. And it's time you started thinking about that. Now, I feel your pain. Here comes this political challenger, a very attractive, tall man, uh, well-known as kind of coming from the South, Arkansas, and challenging the Republican dominance in the South, given his success, um, and tied into figures like William Fulbright, uh, you know, who had been a senator from Arkansas, well-known, well-liked, well-respected, um, and also that he had been a Georgetown student, a Yale Law student. So he was seen as the new image of the Democrat in the South. I think that we're only now beginning to get into a phase of the campaign where you can actually raise voter interest and involvement and engagement in the process. I think the American people before November comes are going to want to be very, very involved in this election and, and very involved in the issues. For more than a generation, um, the southern states were part of the old FDR coalition. They were reliably Democrat. Um, people called themselves yellow dog Democrats because they'd rather you know, they would rather vote for a yellow dog if it was a Democrat. Um, and but Republicans, starting with well, really with Barry Goldwater's loss, among the only states that Barry Goldwater had won were about five or six southern states. But then with Richard Nixon's Southern strategy, and then with Ronald Reagan. Because the South was more culturally conservative, um, Republicans started making major inroads there. And part of Clinton's appeal was that he could win back a lot of those voters. And he could also win over younger voters, which Republicans always sort of struggle with, um, by being a voice of a new generation. He fancied himself very much as as so many Democratic leader, Democratic politicians did of his generation as the heir apparent to the JFK legacy. I want every person in this hall and every person in this land to reach out and join us in a great new adventure to chart a bold new future. As a teenager, I heard John Kennedy's summons to citizenship. How many times did he show the picture of him shaking JFK's hand at Boys Nation? How often did he? That was it. Uh, and Bill Clinton, so not only did he have the centrist appeal to people in states like his own, but also he had generational appeal 
Uh, George H.W. Uh, Bush was of the World War II generation, the old guys. Bill Clinton, I'm the baby boomer, were the, the bridge to the 21st century. And if you go to Arkansas and see the bridge to the 21st century, it's unfinished and goes out into the middle of the Arkansas River where it stops cold. I want to express my thanks to all the outstanding men and women whom we considered and to tell you how deeply moved I was by the love and concern that each of them have for this great nation. Bill Clinton, I, I would argue, quite brilliantly recognized that really your vice presidential pick is, is a marketing play. You pick that person for a message, and you have to figure out what the message is. And it's less about uniting the party. I mean, you could argue that Ronald Reagan was pick of George H.W. Bush was a more traditional pick because what he was trying to do was unite his own party. What Bill Clinton was trying to do was double down on a message. The man standing beside me today has what it takes to lead this nation from the day we take office. Senator Al Gore of Tennessee. I think that he just underlined the thing that Clinton was selling. New generation. George H.W. Bush was older. Here are these two young, vigorous guys. As a matter of fact, if I remember correctly, the day that he chose him, you could look this up, the cover of Newsweek, and yes, we used to actually read news magazines then and care about what they said, the cover of Newsweek had the two of them jogging together. But so the whole idea was young, vigorous, um, new. And don't forget, up until that moment, Democrats generally only won when they had a new generation candidate. You know, uh, uh, Kennedy, Carter, but um, but anyway, it was a new young, new generation ticket. Halfway through this century, when my father saw that thousands of his fellow Tennesseans were forced to obey Jim Crow laws, he knew America could do better. He saw a horizon in which his black and white constituents shared the same hopes in the same world. He fought against the Southern Manifesto and for voting rights. His last election was lost, but his conscience won. He taught me all my life that that was what really counted. Albert Sr. was on the left wing of his party. And uh, one of the things that uh, Al Gore Sr. used Al Gore Jr. for was to provide some cover for him because Al Gore Sr. Was, was opposed to the Vietnam War, was seen as sort of a peacenik type, and his son, who served in the military, was a useful sort of, uh, you know, whether you want to be cynical or not about it, a photo op, you know, play for Al Gore Sr. And that was a big part of Al Gore's sort of introduction into political life was coming to the rescue a little bit for his dad. Al Gore's father uh, was a very powerful man in Tennessee, a very wealthy man. And Al Gore, Al Gore wants you to know that he is a very serious person and is thinking very serious thoughts all of the time about seriousness. So his sober-sided seriousness was uh, a good balance to Bill Clinton, who by then was just understood to be gross and sort of leaned into it a little bit, right? I think it was James Carville, Bill Clinton's man, who said that if you drag $20 through a trailer park, you'd be, you'd be surprised what you'd get about the women who were making accusations to Bill Clinton. And Al Gore was the opposite of that. But you got to understand, too, Bill Clinton, his father was dead. 
he was raised by a single mom, and the mom had some troubles in her life, alcoholism, gambling, and the rest. And so here comes this kid who seems like a force of nature um, and has this up-from-the-bootstraps, poor white kid from the South story that suggested that he is every man, um, very different than any of the Democrats that had been running through the 70s and 80s. He is a Southerner and comes from no political dynasty and promises that there is a new vision of a unified America out there uh, and that it is in his person, Bill Clinton. My friends in New Hampshire, don't elect the last president of the 20th century. Help me to be the first president of the 21st century so we can all win again. Thank you, and God bless you all. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Across the country, people are angry and see the Los Angeles riots as a symptom. The Muslim Republic of Azerbaijan became the eighth Soviet state to declare independence. Criminal charges and civil damage claims resulting from the Exxon Valdez oil spill nearly two years ago have been resolved. He said Dahmer tried to avoid killing by attempting to lobotomize some of his victims. The marksman shot and killed the wife of white separatist Randy Weaver and also wounded a family friend. He's going to be a spokesman for HIV virus and try to tell kids that it can happen to anyone. And as a friend of his, as a player in the NBA, I think... Uh, I'm obligated as much as he is to do the same. Just really fascinating, isn't it, that suddenly we got the President of the United States interested in a balanced budget. One of the realities of that 92 race is that it's not only Democrats who have a sense that it's time for change. You get this push from independents and the man who represents this is Ross Perot, a Texas businessman, runs a computer processing company in Dallas. And Perot is quite a character, sort of a short guy with a twangy accent uh, and a great slogan. You know, that giant sucking sound you hear is the sound of jobs being taken away, leaving the U.S. for Mexico. And he was television magic. Now, when we first brought up the town hall, if you go all the way inside the Beltway, it scared them to death because they've been running the country internally and suddenly we wanted to give it back to you. And he'd go on with Larry King. He'd say, Larry, I don't know what these idiots in Washington are doing. Blah, 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 blah. And people are like, this guy makes sense. This tiny, angry man with a crew cut makes a lot of sense. I like what he's saying. And so it goes on for a while. And then he starts playing with the will I run for president. And the way that he does it, he says, I'm only going to run if I'm on the ballot in all 50 states. So if you 
whoever you is, uh, get me on the ballot in all 50 states, then I may run. Well, guess who was trying to get him on the ballot in all 50 states? Him. The organization across the hall, United We Stand, was doing the effort while Perot said, well, if they, if the people want me, then I'll do it. So he's almost on in all 50 states. He's going on Larry King, you know, all the time and talking about this. And excitement is building and Perot is up 20%. He's up to 20% in the polls. It's a real three-way race. Some polls he's ahead. Financially, at least, it's going to be a long, hot summer, right? Now, I don't have to tell you who gets hurt first when this sort of thing happens, do I? You, your people do. Your people do. I know that. You know that. The crazy cakes came to town. And he said that the CIA was trying to smear his daughter on behalf of George H.W. Bush. His uh, other daughter said that they were doctoring photos to portray her as a lesbian ahead of her wedding and all of this stuff. And Perot dropped out of the race. As you know, if we cannot win in November, the election will be decided in the House of Representatives. And since the House of Representatives is made up primarily of Democrats and Republicans, our chances of winning would be pretty slim. And it was like a, if you ever popped a brown paper bag, boom, that's what it was like. And Perot's support, so Perot through the early part, through the spring and into the summer, had hurt both candidates about equally. Bush and Clinton had both suffered about equally. But man, when Perot disappeared, Clinton's support came back. Bush's did not. And that had to do with the state of the economy and resentments about Bush. And Bush, one of Bush's lines that he had used was the conservatives will come home to roost by November. And a lot of them said, nah, bro. Um, Bush had been really, Pat Buchanan had really hurt him at their convention. It had been a very bad summer for Bush in 92. Um, that convention was a debacle and Bush was really struggling. Now, sounds, uh, sounds to me like his policy can be summed up by a road sign he's probably seen on his bus tour, slippery when wet. One of the reasons that George Bush lost is because he lost support in his base. When George H.W. Bush said, read my lips, no new taxes, and then went on to make a deal with the Democrats to reduce the deficit by, among other things, raising taxes, Newt Gingrich and a bunch of conservative insurgent Republican members of the House decided that he was an apostate and he lost support among his base. I'm not, and I know you're not, a fan of tax increases. But if there have to be tax measures they should allow the economy to grow. So George H.W. Bush did what he thought was the right thing. And I think history sees him as somebody who was a decent man of integrity who tried to do the right thing. He wanted to reduce the deficit and um, you could cut spending or raise taxes. I think the deal did both, but there was a strong anti-tax movement in the Republican Party. The Republican Party was at that moment becoming the modern Republican Party, strong against taxes, strong on the social issues. Remember, George H.W. Bush had once been pro-choice. Um, so the party was changing kind of under his feet. The ground was shifting under his feet. And the going back on the no new taxes pledge was just an act of apostasy, according to the, the kind of insurgent Republicans like, like Newt. Um, and that really hurt him. The economy really came to be the dominant topic of conversation in the 92 race. It's the economy stupid is the byword for the Clinton campaign. 
you have the parole folks saying we can do a better job with conservative principles in terms of bolstering the nation's economic output. And you have at the same time George H.W. Bush saying, you know, I'm not sure where we're going, not making a clear case. Change for change's sake isn't enough. We saw that message in the late 70s, and we heard a lot about change and what happened, and misery index went right through the roof. But I, my economic program, I think, is the kind of change we want. And the way we're going to get it done is we're going to have a brand-new Congress. A lot of them are thrown out because of all the scandals. I'll sit down with them, Democrats and Republicans alike, and work for my agenda for American renewal, which represents real change. The perceptions of his presidency were great after the, the, the Gulf War, and then... I think they, the perception of him was that he was out of touch. There was a famous moment when he went into a supermarket on the campaign trail and he looked at the supermarket scanner. Yes, believe it or not, there was a time when those were new and unusual and he didn't know what it was. So it made him seem kind of out of touch with ordinary people. And of course, he was running against the best retail politician of his generation, Bill Clinton, who not only knew what a supermarket scanner was, but probably could tell you the price of every single staple in that grocery store. Your heart just goes out to George H.W. Bush because not only did he get a very unfair treatment, uh, the, you know, the, the grocery scanner story was fake news and all of that stuff, but also the fact that uh, voters are fickle. And there was like, OK, what have you done for me lately? It's been six months since you rescued the globe from chaos. Uh, I'm, I'm done with you, bro. George H.W. Bush, when he was president, uh, David Duke, this jackass, you know, Klansman wins a primary in, in Louisiana. And Bush, who did not have a racist bone in his body, was a decent man, um, but he didn't know how to talk about this kind of stuff either. He goes out and gives a press conference. And he says something along the lines of, I want to appear as if I am distancing myself as much as possible from David Duke, right? And he was sort of this one degree of separation. He didn't show, he told. That's why he like, like there's another example where George H.W. Bush literally read his stage direction because someone had told him that the message you have to convey is, I care. And he wrote down message, I care. And then he said it out loud. It's like, message, I care rather than showing that he cared, showing that he was empathetic, whatever. Message, I care. Perot reappears in the race. How many people here today can remember when the words made in the USA were the world standard for action? You know what? I'm on the ballot in all 50 states. I guess the CIA is not trying to frame my daughter and her sexual choices. And poof, he reappears. And just in time for the debates and just in time to cause trouble for George H.W. Bush. Tragically, kind of, or, or it's kind of like a Greek tragedy, George H.W. Bush got in trouble for breaking his no new taxes pledge because he was trying to make a budget deal that reduced the deficit. No good deed goes unpunished because along comes Ross Perot, who's, who had two major issues, trade deals, he didn't like them, and the deficit. And poor George H.W. Bush had tried to do something about that, gotten in trouble with his right flank. And here's Ross Perot coming along and saying, you know, the deficit is a real problem. We have to do something about it. So, so that was a real problem. Also, it's very hard to win re-election when there's a third party candidate uh, splitting your base and taking votes away from you. And Ross Perot took votes away from the Republican, no doubt about it. Bush trailed going 
into the debates and into October by about 15 points and couldn't shake it. Bill Clinton underperformed his polls a little bit. Bill Clinton had been overstated in the polls. He had been uh, approaching 50%, but ended up substantially short of a majority. But it was a decisive defeat for George Bush. And yet the cash register is empty and it used to have our money, the taxpayers' money in it. And we didn't get the results. No, we'll get it done. We'll have to take Perot ultimately gets, I think, like 19% of the vote in the presidential election. And with that, takes 19% of the vote away from, arguably, George H.W. Bush. I don't think there's any question here that the majority of that 19% came from George H.W., not from Bill Clinton. Here's the way we see it, the country should see it, that the people have spoken, and we respect the majesty of the democratic system. I just called uh, Governor Clinton over in Little Rock and offered my congratulations. He did run a strong campaign. I wish him well in the White House, and uh, I want the country to know that our entire administration will work closely with his team to ensure the smooth transition of power. There is important work to be done, and America must always come first, so we will get behind this new president and wish him, wish him well. I, William Jefferson Clinton, do solemnly swear. I, William Jefferson Clinton, do solemnly swear. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. Given how much we talk about the importance of the popular vote and all these things that we have today, um, Bill Clinton didn't win the popular vote. Jonah Goldberg. He was a plurality president, and that was in part because of Ross Perot. And political scientists get into huge knockdown, drag out fights. It's, it's ugly, smashed bottles, you know, cutthroats about whether or not Perot cost Bush the election or, or not. And I'm on the side that Perot probably did cost Bush the election. But there are very strong and legitimate arguments on the other side of that. Regardless, part of the, the signal that Bill Clinton took from that was that um, the majority of Americans were basically center-right. And he tried to um, govern that way eventually. His initial, when he first got in there, it was sort of like caddy day at the Bushwood Country Club, um, where all of these young fairly radical left-wing types just come storming in, jumping in the pool, making a lot of mistakes. Bill Clinton came into the presidency uh, like a, a single-A college football team going into the Super Bowl. Chris Steyerwalt. He had no idea even what the game he was playing was. And he was so arrogant and so lacking in an understanding of how to succeed in Washington, that he wasted essentially the entirety of his first year in office. It was an explosion of extraordinary magnitude that ripped through the underground garage beneath the huge World Trade Center complex. To give the most charitable version of how Clinton reacted to the rising threat of terrorism, 
you have to remember that the Cold War had ended, that there was this notion that Char- our late colleague Charles Krauthammer called a holiday from history. The economy was booming, everything, you know, every one of the sort of political successes and economic successes of the country seemed like we were just pushing on open doors. And there was this notion that terrorism was really basically a global law enforcement problem. A number of innocent people lost their lives. Hundreds were injured and thousands were struck with fear in their hearts when an explosion rocked the basement of the World Trade Center. To their families, you are in the thoughts and prayers of my family. And in the synagogues and churches last night, today, and tomorrow, you will be remembered and thought of again and again. My thoughts are also with the police, the firefighters, the emergency response teams, and the citizens whose countless acts of bravery averted even more bloodshed. Their reaction and their valor reminds us of how often Americans are at their best when we face the worst. The World Trade Center bombing was seen as something that the FBI should be concerned about, but it wouldn't. It did not necessitate a major rethinking of our national security posture. All around the world, aggressors, thugs, and terrorists will conclude that the best way to get us to change our policies is to kill our people. It would be open season on Americans. That is why I am committed to getting this job done in Somalia, not only quickly, but also effectively. You have several Americans killed uh, when a Black Hawk helicopter goes in to try to rescue Americans on the ground. Juan Williams. And this incident is one that got a lot of attention because the suggestion was that the military had not prepared and wasn't ready to go in and rescue its people. They were very reluctant to see the signs for what they were. And um, in fairness to the Clintons, so were a lot of the people who would later become his critics. And then they got their clocks cleaned in 1994. Uh, two years later, Newt Gingrich, who had figured out how to, to, to win, right, what to do to win, um, and really to fight dirty um, and get into it. And Republicans won back the House for the first time since Harry Truman was president. And it was an earthquake. And I want to promise every American that we will have the same ad at the speaker's desk every day until we meet our obligations. And we will begin the session every day by rereading the ad until we have met our obligations. And we will keep our commitment to keep our half of the contract with the help of the American people. Newt Gingrich lays out the contract with America. And he starts listing things, you know, that the politicians should promise the people so that people wouldn't be so cynical about politics. But largely, it was anti-Clinton and anti-Democrats. And he was playing hardball politics at the moment, trying to take advantage of the sense of loss of equilibrium out there to say, Republicans, and especially far-right Republicans, not establishment Republicans, know how to set the ship right. And what it led to was the loss of the House for the Democrats under Clinton and questions about whether Clinton was going to be reelected in 96. I'm the president. 
I'm the leader of the efforts that we have made in the last two years. And to whatever extent that we didn't do what the people wanted us to do, or they were not aware of what we had done, I must certainly bear my share of responsibility, and I accept that. So there was a just there was a just generally a growing pains period in the beginning part of the Clinton administration that eventually he kind of found his footing, and in part he brought in much to the chagrin of many people on the left. He brought in people like David Gergen, a longtime sort of Republican communications guy, veteran of the Nixon and 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 Reagan administrations. Uh, eventually, he brought in. Someone who I think is one of the most cynical and and mercenary political operatives of the last 40 years, Dick Morris, who nonetheless was kind of brilliant and started giving him advice about how to reclaim the center. The bombing in Oklahoma City was an attack on innocent children and defenseless citizens. It was an act of cowardice. And it was evil. I think the Oklahoma City bombing really was a moment, a much bigger moment than what happened in terms of 93 and the World Trade Center attack. What you get in the Oklahoma City bombing is a country in shock. Um, People couldn't believe it. It just seemed so horrific. And it was domestic terrorism. And so there was this sense of, you know, things are getting a little unhinged and we're really looking for stability and guidance and more of someone who's in touch with the people. Um, and why is why are these things happening? But there was no anger at Washington because of it. It was more a sense of the culture and the larger society looking for some ballast at that moment. Members of Congress, I have the high privilege and the distinct honor of presenting to you the President of the United States. Gingrich turns out to be a perfect foil for Bill Clinton. Here's old Bill Clinton. He's your buddy. He's just, oh, I'm just trying to make things better for everybody over here. And here's Newt Gingrich, and who was, you know, fighting over where he rode in Air Force One and all of this stuff and the histrionics and these things. And he was a perfect foil for Clinton, got Clinton back on the good foot, and set it up for 1996, where, of course, he drew, I don't want to say the worst Republican nominee of the 20th century. I mean, Bob Dole, good, a good man, a war hero and all of that stuff. But woof, not a good presidential candidate. Meanwhile, Bob Dole, there's a long history in the Republican Party of nominating the next guy whose turn it is. Uh, and we, we the Republicans have done that, did that for years, where... Uh, you know, George H.W. Bush almost beats Reagan in 1980. He becomes his vice president. He pays his dues. And then it's his turn. Um, Bob Dole almost beat George H.W. Bush in 1988. So he's on deck for 1996. And the problem was is that, it, you know, it turns out in retrospect, there was a lot of unfair stuff about how Bob Dole was too old and couldn't fulfill his term. You know, the guy, you know, just kept on ticking long, you know, a decade after, you know, he le- he would have been, finished his second term. Um, the guy was uh, is a tough old SOB. And if you know the story of Bob Dole in World War II, you should have known that. But man, did he just seem out of tempo with the times. Bob Dole had been a loyal Republican soldier for many years. 
And when I say soldier, don't forget Bob Dole had been injured in World War II, badly injured. Um, And he was a man from Kansas who had long and deep standing, not only in the party, but in the Senate. So he was well connected everywhere. And that Clinton was showing in the polls points of weakness. So get somebody who's known and trusted by the American people, and that's Bob Dole. The Economist magazine polled lots of economists. Seven Nobel Prize winners have said, if this tax scheme passes, it will require huge cuts, 40% in the environment, in law enforcement, in education, require bigger cuts in Medicare than I vetoed last time. My targeted tax cut gives tax cuts for education, child rearing, buying a first-time home, paying for health care costs, and it's paid for. And I told you how I'll pay for it. He won't tell you because he can't. Your targeted tax cut, Mr. President, never hits anybody. That's a problem with it. Nobody ever gets it. But I, I, I must say I'm a little offended by this word scheme. You talked about it last time. You talked about a risky scheme, and then Vice President Gore repeated it about ten times in St. Petersburg. Uh, if I have anything in politics, it's my word. My colleagues, Democrats and Republicans, will tell you that Bob Dole kept his word. By the time election night happened, Mara Liason. it was pretty much a foregone conclusion that Bill Clinton would beat Bob Dole. The Republican Party had already thrown Dole under the bus, and Newt Gingrich was already deciding that the best way to keep their congressional seats was to run as a check and balance on Bill Clinton. That's always the magic moment when you know a party has given up on their nominee. And it's very hard to unseat an incumbent in general. It's really hard to unseat an incumbent when the economy is good. Bill Clinton goes riding into a second term with what he says is a mandate for, he talked about, he, he uh, stole and abused Arthur Schlesinger's term, the vital center. And he said that he was going to govern from the vital center and that they were going to do all these things and all this consensus building, whatever, and yada, yada, yada. And then there was the thing with the intern and none of that happened. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody to lie. Not a single time. Never. It was pretty bad. Uh, you know, I remember I was doing Fox News Sunday and, you know, Drudge Report came out with this story and people weren't sure. Is it real? Is it not real? Then Newsweek got involved in confirmation and, and uh, you know, this um, blue dress with a stain and all these stories. It was just tawdry. And again, Many people were thinking, is this a political setup job? Is this like, you know, the attack coming from what Hillary Clinton had previously described as, uh, you know, what Hillary Clinton had called a vast right wing conspiracy against her husband? Um, People were just, again, fascinated because it dealt with sexual behavior. But at the same time, uh, there was a tremendous pushback from Clinton supporters and people who thought, this is dirty politics. I have been telling the truth. I have witnesses. This is not just my word against his. I am committed to see this case through as long as it takes. And in the end, I know 
I want to get my good name and reputation back. Paula Jones's allegations against Bill Clinton were of a different kind than the claims we had heard against Bill Clinton before. America already knew about his long-running affair uh, with uh, Jennifer Flowers, and he certainly was known to be a philanderer and a, uh, a, a bit of a debauched person. But what uh, Paula Jones alleged was that with the help of the Arkansas State Police, that Bill Clinton had against her wishes propositioned her and exposed himself to her. And she was willing to provide specifics. Uh, and it was actually uh, Bill Clinton's uh, testimony in that case, in a deposition that led to the perjury charge against him in his eventual impeachment. This afternoon in this room, from this chair, I testified before the Office of Independent Counsel and the Grand Jury. I answered their questions truthfully, including questions about my private life, questions no American citizen would ever want to answer. Still, I must take complete responsibility for all my actions, both public and private. And that is why I am speaking to you tonight. As you know, in a deposition in January, I was asked questions about my relationship with Monica Lewinsky. While my answers were legally accurate, I did not volunteer information. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Ms. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. In fact, it was wrong. It constituted a critical lapse in judgment and a personal failure on my part for which I am solely and completely responsible. The first wave of U.S. support personnel arrived Sunday at the bombed U.S. Embassy in Nairobi. The Pentagon is sending a total of 14 aircraft to Kenya and Tanzania. On board are anti-terrorist experts, medical teams, and supplies. There are attacks on U.S. embassies in Africa, uh, including the embassy in Kenya, a strong ally, very westernized, and it sparks tremendous controversy at that moment, and there's specifically the idea that Al-Qaeda is responsible. And remember, at that juncture, Al-Qaeda was not a name known to most Americans. Good afternoon. Today, I ordered our armed forces to strike at terrorist-related facilities in Afghanistan and Sudan because of the threat they present to our national security. I have said many times that terrorism is one of the greatest dangers we face in this new global era. As day six of the standoff between the Branch Davidian cult and federal agents continued... We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Orenthal James Simpson, not guilty of the crime of murder. Well, Nirvana was my favorite band. I, you know, I, I read his book. How Ripken Jr. became baseball's ultimate Iron Man. President Clinton arrived at the Elysee Palace in Paris today, the occasion marking a foreign policy triumph, putting to paper peace in the Balkans. House Resolution 611 resolved that William Jefferson Clinton, President of the United States, is impeached for high crimes and misdemeanors, and that the following articles of impeachment be... And two-thirds of the, of the senators present not having found him guilty of the charges contained therein. 
It is therefore ordered and adjudged that the said William Jefferson Clinton be and he hereby is acquitted of the I charges. I want to say again to the American people how profoundly sorry I am for what I said and did to trigger these events and the great burden they have imposed on the Congress and on the American people. He figured out a way to, to keep impeachment compartmentalized in the White House. There were people who worked on impeachment. They didn't talk to any of the people who didn't work on impeachment. He kept his focus on the economy. He had a, a bunch of very popular programs that he pushed. Um, I don't think, you know, I don't know if impeachment had a measurable impact on the last two years of his term, because that's when it happened. It happened, you know, fairly late in his administration. But there's no doubt that impeachment is going to affect uh, his legacy because now we see Bill Clinton through the lens of character and character defects. And that's what the impeachment was about. These are good times for America. We have more than 14 million new jobs, the lowest unemployment in 24 years, the lowest co-inflation in 30 years. Incomes are rising and we have the highest home ownership in history. Crime has dropped for a record five years in a row and the welfare rolls are at their lowest levels in 27 years. Our leadership in the world is unrivaled. Ladies and gentlemen, the state of our union is strong. Clinton was impeached by the House, but not removed from office. It failed in terms of a conviction in the Senate. But what it did to Clinton was it diminished him. I think that especially among women voters and progressive voters, there was the sense that maybe he wasn't the bridge to the future that he had seemed to be for so long, that he was himself involved in activities that people just were not comfortable with, not proud of. And it gave the Republicans, his Republican opponents, a tremendous foothold in terms of attacking not only Bill Clinton, but attacking the man who wanted to extend Clinton's time, Al Gore. Al Gore had never seemed to be his own man, right? He had always seemed to be in somebody's shadow, whether it was father or whether it was Bill Clinton. Al Gore had always seemed like something of an understudy. And while Clinton was very popular and the economy was good and we were in the dot-com boom and all of these things, Gore wanted to be different. And he wanted to, he wanted to cast himself as a different kind of guy. Um, uh, his major pro project as, as vice president was something called reinventing government, which is so boring that it would make even boring people weep. This Thursday, October 1st, we will finally reach the first balance budget and the first budget surplus in 30 years. But before we even see the first penny of that surplus, there are some in the congressional majority who want to squander it completely on risky tax schemes and unravel our hard-won fiscal discipline and in the process, abandon our best chance to strengthen Social Security for the next generation. The 2000 election was in many ways shaping up to be basically a Bush-Clinton rematch with Gore standing in as the proxy for the Clintons. Come with me toward America's new horizon, 
Across that horizon stands the values and the promise and prosperity of strengthening every family, lifting every child, leveling every barrier, leaving no one behind. That's a little unfair to Gore, or at least Gore certainly thought so, because Gore didn't have an, you know, an affair with an intern or anybody else. And, um, and he spent a lot of the Clinton presidency fighting with Hillary Clinton for the mantle of leadership of the Democratic Party in the first place. And there was all sorts of in-house intrigue on that front. Um, and so one of the consequences of this was that Al Gore did not use Bill Clinton very much as a surrogate in the 2000 campaign because he wanted to keep an arm's, arm's length from Bill Clinton. Thank you and may God bless you and God bless America. Former President George Bush arrived in College Station, Texas in grand fashion for the dedication of his presidential library and museum. It was hard, obviously, losing the election. Gene Becker. We were in Kennebunkport, Maine, and the Bushes had invited some friends over for cocktails. One of them had just been fired, and he was going on and on and on about how embarrassing it was. He couldn't go out in public. His life was over, his life was ruined. And he, I think he said something like, you have no idea what it feels like to be fired. And George Herbert Walker Bush gave him a look and very kindly, but firmly, he said, in 1992, I was fired by the American people. One of the plot lines in the TV show that was our politics in the 1990s is that we were kind of unfair to Poppy Bush. We shouldn't have fired him. He was a good guy. He, it became more and more apparent uh, what a statesmanlike role he played in winding down the Cold War, unifying Germany, how he handled the savings and loan crisis, which could have launched a huge, huge recession, if not a depression, a huge financial crisis. He, he handled that adroitly. And he was a classy dude. And... Um, Meanwhile, the stories about Bill Clinton, particularly after the Lewinsky thing broke and all of the other, you know, sordid stories that had come out, um, the sort of metaphysical tackiness of Bill Clinton's personal life uh, started to mount up. President Bush absolutely realized that George W. and Jeb running for governor of their respective states, Texas and Florida, had a lot to do with bringing him out of his 1992 malaise. Neither one of them would have been able to do that if he was still president of the United States. Jeb and I entered the political arena not only because we subscribe to a philosophy and because we believe in the power of ideas, but we entered politics because we want to help people help themselves. And uh, as governors of our states, it's a they're great laboratories for change and constructive change and for encouraging people, for educating children. George W. Bush was at the vanguard of a changing Republican Party. He had learned the lessons from his father's defeat in 1992. He had learned the lessons from what his father experienced with Pat Robertson in 1988 and Pat Buchanan in 1992. And he came forward with a brand that was in some ways more conservative than his father on social issues. He was a uh, unapologetic, uh, born-again evangelical Christian. Uh, he, was, uh, he was fluent in the language of the church and of 
the, the growing evangelical movement in the country in a way that his Episcopalian father never could have been. But then he was he was new in another way, which was they called it compassionate conservative. But he was a pretty bipartisan cat in Texas. He won first against a extraordinary politician. You know, Ann Richards was an extraordinary politician. You could even say that in Texas, Ann Richards was the female Bill Clinton, <laughs> sort of. You know, I mean, she was she was really good. For the people of the United States, God bless you all. And he beat her. George W. Bush has a a swagger, you know, the Texas appeal of a young man with Washington credentials through his father, George H.W. Bush. But there was something more to him in the sense that people saw him as having energy and direction and a little bit of moxie in the Clinton style. Good morning. This is your candidate, George W. Bush. Welcome aboard the inaugural flight of Great Expectations. He benefited enormously from early name recognition because... Uh, you know, you, you, a pollster asks someone, you know, would you, are you in favor of George Bush? They don't notice that, oh, it's a, it's George W. Bush, not George H.W. Bush, right? So you had sort of instant name recognition and it tapped into a nostalgia about the Bush presidency. And the Bush guys who were brilliant at this, they parlayed early success in polls in these head to head matchups um, that were driven in large part by this nostalgia for, you know, the first Bush administration um, into massive fundraising success. What was the biggest vulnerability of Clinton character? You know, so George W. Bush ran on restoring honor, as he said it, honor and dignity to the Oval Office. And Al Gore tried to um, do something that was incredibly hard that only George H.W. Bush had been able to do, which is to get a third term for his party. You know, if there's, I know that historical rules only work till they stop working, but one rule that generally works is after eight years, people want to change. And so Al Gore, as he's coming into his own, has a very distinct image from Bill Clinton, and he pushes the idea that he's not Bill Clinton um, as he's getting ready to run uh, for the in the 2000 election. I ask for your help to strengthen family life in America, and I make you this pledge. If you entrust me with the presidency, I will marshal its authority, its resources, and its moral leadership to fight for America's families. Al Gore uh, was looking forward to a beauty contest in Iowa that he was uh, well assured of winning. George W. Bush, though, had some baggage when he went because he knew that he was not going to let what happened to his dad happen to him, that Bush could go out there and uh, try to exercise those old demons. Uh, that was what he was looking to do and have a decisive win. I will swear to uphold the honor and the integrity of the office to which I have been elected. So help me God. Thank you all for coming and God bless you all. Next time on Election Rewind. I will take my own values of faith and family to the presidency. If you sent him in and he did a lot of campaigning, you weren't going to gain ground, you were probably going to lose ground. That I am a candidate for president of the United States. He provided an opportunity for Republicans who were looking for, you know, something different. It became a very negative race. It's going to be an interesting election. 
The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts.